This evening, uh, I'd like to say a few words about what we've been doing up until now and uh, see if I can lay the groundwork where this leads, uh, including the next step in terms of practice instructions. The instructions won't be tonight, but be given tonight, but uh, so that there's some sense as to why we've been doing what we've been doing and where this moves to. Um, Shamatha Vipassana is what our practice is sometimes called or serene reflection. Uh, first you train the mind to enter into serenity uh, and then with that quality of clear seeing you're able to reflect. The mind can reflect into itself. Before we start, um, a compliment to all of you. Um, Michael and I were informed by people in the office that there are two noteworthy events. One, there are dramatically fewer notes with (laughs) yogi (laughs) requests. And the other is that efficiency is up. (laughs) So the job training is going well and people's attitude, I don't know, humming along and whistling while you work because you found out it's spiritual on Saturday. Um, we couldn't help but have a little bit of uh, parental pride when we heard about it. We were a little little puffed up. Uh, But seriously, what it means is that uh, you're trying to put this into practice. Uh, Let me say a few words on this because um, in one sense it's... uh, fun and so forth, but in another sense it can be really be helpful for you, not only here but when you go home. Um, I don't know if I come out uh, looking as big a fool as Michael with his wooden bench story or not, but I'll let you vote on that to side. Um, now I would say it was more than 20 years ago uh, when myself and two other Americans went to Korea to practice Zen at uh, monasteries there, we went with our teacher, a Korean Zen master. And when we arrived, uh, 20 years ago, I don't know how Korea is now, but uh, the food was Korean, you know. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. And uh, we didn't count on that. We thought, uh, you know, at least now and then we could get something else, but day in and day out, it's uh, pickled cabbage, especially in monasteries which are vegetarian, pickled cabbage of some kind, and other pickled vegetables, and rice, and some kind of broth, miso broth. And they have that for breakfast as well, and lunch, and if there's a third meal, and then barley tea. Day in and day out, it was uh, like Groundhog Day, or you know, if you've seen that movie. And uh, we started making jokes, and I was, I think, the ringleader. Uh, that what we would give for just, uh, you know, house of pancakes, pancakes, or 
just anything for even McDonald's burger would just be wonderful now. And we were making all these jokes about how much we missed American food and what we would settle for and what we would give for it. And our teacher at first uh, chuckled and laughed, and then I noticed this, he, then he just smiled a little, and then he stopped smiling. <laughs> Uh, and one day after a lot of this, uh, you have to understand how difficult it was. Two of the three of us were New York Jews, and uh, there's no coffee and cake over there. You know, <laughs> at least there wasn't then. So uh, we were really deprived. For, talk about yogi needs. <laughs> if this were if this were inside if, uh, IMS over there, they'd probably uh, have it you know, what is it, overnight mailed uh, some, you know, <laughs> for just to make us happy. Um, so this one time, finally, uh, he had had enough. Our teacher had had enough. And he asked me at first, he was very uh, mild in the way he said, you know, how do you think it was for me when I first came to the United States? Do you think I really liked American food? And I said, well, I don't know. You know we assumed, of course, he did. Everyone must love American food. <laughs> you know, and he said, no, I hated it. He said, but I ate it because I was in America. And then he, then he, he didn't push me physically, but his, everything else was, I was forced against the wall and he just screamed out. He said, where are you? And I said, Korea. And he said, exactly. And he just walked away on me. <laughs> it was very helpful. <laughs> okay. uh, things got a lot easier once we uh, uh, connected with reality. Uh, but... This is what I'm getting at. Uh, we're not trying to turn this into a, you know, really austere, as if that's a sign of real spiritual practice, if it's like Paris Island Marine Corps uh, training. Um, what we would like, I think all of the teachers and staff and all of us, uh, would like it to be a healthy and reasonably pleasant situation, because you have enough to deal with, don't you? I mean, it's, and that's part of why, from my point of view, sometimes perhaps we've been a little been uh, too much, too indulgent, uh, we know that it's hard and we figure, well, at least if we can give you uh, hot chocolate and marshmallows at night before you go to sleep, animal cookies, whatever. Uh, but in a way that undermines, you go too far in that, it undermines what you're trying to accomplish during the day. Uh, and so I think part of the problem is, again, this comparing mind, which inevitably leads to suffering. The truth is you're not home. Has that hit you yet, that you're not home? <laughs> okay, and if the mind is noticing here, I have to wait for showers and they don't have, you know, whatever it is that you're missing from home, even if it's subtle, that's gonna creep into the mind and you will suffer or suffer more. Uh, whereas if you can begin to accept this is where you are and granted, you won't have everything that you want. There's no question about that. How could you? and uh, learn to work with that. Then it's a, a, not only is it a different quality of retreat, but I think you learn something valuable in the process. Because life is full of situations which are not exactly the way we want them to be and where the comparing mind makes it much worse. It's called whining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is I, epidemic proportions right now. Okay. Um, up till now, uh, we've been working with the breathing and emphasizing calming and concentrating the mind, as you know. Um, while we're attending to the breath, of course, everything else is available to us. We can experience 
our body and uh, discomfort and unhappiness. And so there are all kinds of mental and physical things going on, but the primary focus is on the breathing. And as we improve our ability to do that, and little by little that happens, if you stick with it, that's what happens, um, many benefits develop. Um, someone mentioned last night. One uh, is, of course, there's a certain joy that comes up and a peace. Uh, and what's interesting about it is that it comes out of you and doesn't have anything to do uh, with whether or not people compliment you and think you're brilliant or handsome or beautiful or you get a raise or you don't. Uh, it turns out that when the mind learns how to concentrate and to focus its energies, uh, it starts to feel good and the, the good feeling uh, is not accountable, it, it's not due to anything external to yourself. It's the, some of it is that a dispersed, scattered mind is a kind of suffering. You know, when the mind is cascading like a waterfall, uh, contradictory, and, and we're caught in so much of it. And so if we can unified, unify all of that uh, diverse and some, uh, scattered energy, uh, one thing you start to see is that there is a, a source of joy and peace uh, that comes from simply sitting and breathing. Uh, that has some interesting implications, although in one sense it's strictly speaking not inside or Vipassana yet, uh, there can be some wisdom that grows out of it. For one thing, we can become less desperate about seeking happiness from the outside. Not to eliminate all the uh, kinds of fulfillment that we all have in our lives, but to not be so desperate about it, to not have a, an attitude of being a kind of beggar you know, looking around always for, in other people's eyes to see how we're doing, are we okay? Uh, we start to see that we have some resources within ourselves, and I'm not advocating uh, to live without people, but it can bring a little bit of balance into that uh, sense of adequacy when you understand that uh, independent of how the weather is, or whether you get a raise, or you get fired, or there is a source of uh, fulfillment and peace that's intrinsic and we're not really into uh, deep wisdom yet either. Uh, it can also be inspiring of course. You, you begin to get encouraged that uh, in fact there is something um, real about the practice. Perhaps you've been reading about it and hearing about it. That's no substitute for actually tasting it. When you begin to see that uh, you have something within your reach uh, that really is useful and valuable. There are many other benefits, some of, some of which are um, tricky. For example, as you get very concentrated, you may find that you have psychic powers. Certain psychic powers come up when you get deeply concentrated. There's no question about that. And that's dangerous because it's like any other power. Most of the time we don't know what to do with it, whether it's money or sex or whatever or in this case, psychic powers. Uh, it takes a mature person to use those powers. There's nothing wrong with psychic powers, but typically uh, we get tipped over the edge by them. And so that's one issue. The other is, of course, we get very attached to the quiet and the concentration. And uh, 
we don't want to budge. We don't want to investigate. We don't want to get to know ourselves. We know what that's like. <laughs> you know? So we kind of cozy up to the breath in a way that's not fruitful. And then, of course, uh, what's most to the point, there are also health benefits as the mind becomes more concentrated. Um, and the concentration is not limited to a meditation retreat or the meditation hall. Uh, samadhi, which is another term f for this once it starts to really develop, is something that's meant to be used all day long at your job, in relationship, and so forth. Or as a mind that's really steady and supple. So you can see there's a lot that comes out of simply breath awareness. And of course, it, it puts the mind in a condition, it makes it fit to really look into itself. And now we're on the edge of uh, practicing vipassana, insight meditation. We're fit to do it so that it's not romantic or fanciful. Uh, by that I mean a romantic notion of I want to get to know myself, who am I? That's a, of course a very worthwhile, perhaps the most worthwhile endeavor. Because the degree to which we don't know ourselves, we wreak havoc all over the place. Uh, but in order to do it, you have to be equipped. If you're going to climb a mountain or go on some <coughs> expedition, uh, you'd need clothing and diet and all kinds of things. It's the same for uh, being a <coughs> an inner journey. Psychonaut is what we are, psychonauts. <coughs> uh, so let me put uh, what I've been talking about in context. Uh, it's difficult uh, to do this for me because uh, roughly 25 per one quarter of you are very, very new or totally new to retreats and rather new to practice, new to intensive practice for sure. And then there are many people here who have been practicing for a while. And so how to speak in such a way that we can all um, be included uh, some of what I'm going to say now uh, will be perhaps new to the new people. For the people from Cambridge, it's too old. I mean, you've heard it already enough. <clears throat> but, you know, you came here. What are you? Of course I'm going to be saying the same things I say in Cambridge. <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> um, and if it's... Uh, doesn't, it's not uh, in... Uh, you don't have experience to match this please don't worry about it if it doesn't fully make sense. Uh, it's important to uh, get a sense of this overall um, uh, design, in the sense, of our practice. Uh, what you've been doing, whether you know it or not, what we've been, been beginning to do and we'll be doing uh, much more of starting tomorrow, uh, is we've been uh, developing the four foundations of mindfulness. Many of you know the Satipatthana Sutta, which is like the Declaration of Independence for Vipassana Yogis. That's the meditation teachings that promise liberation. And the Anapanasati Sutta, which is uh, a streamlined version of it uh, using the breath, which is what I use a lot in my own practice and in, in teaching. And we all, m many of us, most of us do do that. Uh, these four foundations of mindfulness are basic to the Buddhist teaching. In a way, it's like, um, think of it as a book. Uh, the book is of your life. And uh, we're learning how to read that book. 
And the first chapter is the body. And then the question is, uh, or in order to really learn from this first chapter in this book, the book for your, your own life, is, it, is how to bring the body into focus. And then how to be mindful of the body. What does that mean? So one, it's telling us what, what to look at, and two, how to look at it. The body here, uh, when I say bring it into focus, it's the body in and of itself. In the Buddha's term, in the Buddha's words, uh, the, the phrase that's used is the, uh, the body in the body, a rather strange way to put it in English, but what it, it means, it has a number of meanings, but the most essential one is that it's the essence of body. There's no, there's no mind about it. It's not body image, which we tend to get confused with. Body image is a mental event. So these are just what you experience, the raw sensations of being embodied. It's not conceptual at all. It's, it's uh, naked. And what you're experiencing, uh, and it's not from based on an anatomical chart or anything of that sort. It's an uh, internal, intimate experience of bodily life. And we've been working on that with the breath because the breath is classified for obvious reasons as part of the body. Now, as you've been attempting to be mindful of the breath, haven't you gotten to know that you have a body? You definitely know that by the discomfort. It reminds you. If you were, let's say, didn't have a lot of body awareness, as some people describe themselves, or I'm not in touch with my body, I have aren't you in touch with your body now? <laughs> you may not like what it is you're in touch with, but you're being reminded that you have a body, and it feels this way, a certain way from moment to moment. And so, uh, in this um, Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which are really quite a few different contemplations. I'm not going to go into them. I'm just going to give you the essence of it. Uh, in contemplating the body, which is not just the breathing, but of course in our case it is very much the breathing and every other aspect of bodily life, what, what is happening is uh, we're becoming more familiar with the body more intimate with the body in the sense in which it was described. The body-body, not some notion about the body. Uh, just like if you want to get to know a person, you have to spend time with them, and you have to get in real close and see them under a variety of uh, conditions. It's the same here. As we stay with the breathing, uh, you can't help but notice how, how rich a world of breath is. It's changing all the time. Uh, moreover, I don't know if you've seen this yet, but at some point you probably will. As you're more conscious of breathing, or as, as the mindfulness of the breathing is more continuous, the quality of the breath changes. You're not trying to change the breath. You're not trying to manipulate it or alter it in any way whatsoever. It's not pranayama, yoga pranayama, except in a, you could say it is in a very subtle way. Because the quality of the breath changes, but not because you're trying to change it, but because it's, when it becomes conscious, something happens to the quality of breathing that's positive. You all know this, even if you only had it for a few breaths. Uh, suddenly the breath feels, ah, oh, very smooth, 
And the breath is a very powerful conditioner of the body and also the mind. But for right now, because in this book, The Four Foundations of Mindfulness, what we're looking at is the body. And the way, as the, bo as the breath goes, to some degree, so goes the body. If the breath becomes very refined, very deep, very subtle, you'll find that the body is just much more relaxed and you're, much able, you're able to sit more comfortably and longer. Sometimes you may not notice that. Uh, and that's, the, obviously the breath is a very powerful conditioner of the body. When we're born, if we're not breathing, whoever is there slaps us to get the breathing going. And when do we die? When, when we stop breathing. So the breath is, it's life itself. And so we are beginning to get to know uh, that first foundation of mindfulness, the body. We're becoming more familiar with it. And in the process of doing that, things become less highly charged. Uh, it's only when we have no experience with something that we are so afraid. A new country, like Korea. <laughs> a new country or a new person or a new situation. And then as you get closer and get to know it, uh, maybe everything that you see is not what you want, but it's workable, or it's more, there's a better chance of it being workable. So there's, some of that is being accomplished. Uh, the second chapter of this book is feelings. In the second foundation of mindfulness, and feelings, for those of you who are new to the practice, is not emotions. It's much simpler. Uh, it's um, sensory contact. That is, we, all day long, we're having contact with the world through our sense doors. Everything okay? <laughs> okay. We're having sensory contact with the world. Uh, right at this moment, you're having it. And whether it's through the ear or the eye or whatever, whichever sense organ, it feels pleasant immediately. It's not something that you have to scratch your head. Or unpleasant. Or if there is a pause, it probably means it's just neutral, which we don't think is anything. But it is something. It's neutral. And so this is going on. And feelings are vital. You already know that. You've gotten in touch with a lot of your feelings. I would say pretty much everything that we've been talking about in interviews, at least in my interviews, are you're not getting enough good feelings and too many painful and uncomfortable feelings, and what can I tell you so that you don't have any more of those? <laughs> and that you get more of the good stuff. And if I'm able to convince you of something, then you're happy and I'm, you think of me as a good teacher. And if I don't play into that, then uh, you're a little disappointed. But we're learning about that, whether it's the physical discomfort or the breath itself sometimes. When you get concentrated, uh, pretty deeply concentrated, uh, what you start to experience are uh, varying various levels of uh, a feeling that is called PT. Uh, P-I-T-I -I in, in the Pali language, it's, uh, what would be a good uh, English? Um, rapture. Uh, and that comes out of a concentrated mind and it's a feeling. And then there's an even subtler one called sukha, and it also grows, it grows out of that, and that's even more fulfilling because it's peaceful. You get fed up with PT after a while. How much, <laughs> how much rapture can you take if it goes on and on, and it can on longer retreats? 
but I don't think you have enough of sukkah. That one is very, very nice, and uh, it's more useful in certain ways. But, and you have a whole range of very small feelings from the taste of the food that you have to your knee hurting to it's too warm in the room, it's too cold in the room, and so forth. So here, in the Buddhist terminology, it's uh, what we're bringing into focus are the feelings, the feelings in the feelings. Just those feelings, that feeling of pleasantness, without anything else that's built up on top of it and around it. Because what we call an emotion is a more complex thing built up out of the feeling. Okay. So it's again that uh, bringing into focus in a very precise way feelings that come up from moment to moment, and once again becoming more familiar with them, and once again they settle down a little bit as you learn how to be mindful of them. It turns out that they're more workable, even the ones that we don't like. Perhaps you've already seen that. Sure, none of us want pain in our body for sitting, but uh, little by little it's more workable. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. You can, it's manageable. And especially since we have things that we can do, which mainly using awareness. And so we become more familiar with the full range of feelings that come up and there's a settling down and a, uh, a more being more at home, even with the, those feelings that we don't like, don't want to be there. The third chapter in this book on our life has to do with the mind, mind states or the mind itself. And of course here it's starting to get really rich. Um, Central in the Buddha's teaching are the, uh, what are called the kilesas. Uh, they're sometimes called uh, mental afflictions or toxins or defilements, poisons. I like that myself because they kind of poison the heart, not the physical heart, although they affect that too. And this is greed, hatred, and delusion. You probably have heard this. Even those who are new have probably heard it. Uh, if you haven't, you haven't been in a Buddhist center, because that's something that is used a lot. Uh, nirvana is considered, one definition of it is a complete letting go of attachment to any greed, hatred, and delusion. Okay, now that's been with you too, so you've gotten to know feelings, even though mainly what we're with is the breath. How could you not have gotten to know the body to some degree? You're starting to become more familiar with feelings, and uh, this third uh, foundation of mindfulness. It's the mind when it's filled up with wanting. A lot of those um, hindrances that were talked about uh, last evening. And by the way, those hindrances, uh, they have a more or less direct relationship with concentration. So as the mind gets more concentrated, the hindrances more and more go into abeyance. They're not eliminated, but they're less of a problem. And it goes the other way. As you're able to take some of the power out of a hindrance, then it's, of course, easier for the mind to get concentrated. So they're related to each other. Uh, so one important uh, aspect or flavor of mind that we have to get to know is the mind filled with wanting. The mind wants anything. It's in that mode of reaching out, trying to get something that uh, it feels it doesn't have whatever that might be. 
the other mode where we spend a lot of time is just the opposite in a sense. It's aversive, pushing away, trying to annihilate, get rid of. And so if we're not busy wanting, we're busy not wanting. And so that, and these are states that have many children, so they're all kinds of subtle descendants from these two main ones. And the third, which is the root of it all in the, in the Buddhist way of looking at things, the Buddhist, in the Buddhist teaching, is what is sometimes called delusion or confusion or ignorance. Um, we grasp at things so often because we uh, think it's going to lead to happiness. We don't fully see clearly. And so craving, which it is said produces suffering, you have to see if that's true. To be tested, this is not a, a new ideology we're trying to foist on you. Why do we keep doing that? Why do we keep looking for happiness in the wrong places and in the wrong way? I mean, ultimate kinds of happiness. And so, delusion is what these rise out of. Uh, and to make it more concrete, when the mind is full of confusion, ambivalence, uh, hesitation, but a kind of, uh, oh, I don't know, among uh, Cambridge, especially among intellectual people, is a kind of chronic tentativeness, you know, <laughs> where no matter what you ask, yeah, mm-hmm, that's interesting, yeah, maybe let's, I'll give it some thoughts, kick that idea around, yeah, 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 and go on for years. <laughs> this, so it's, the tentativeness is good. I mean, that can be an openness, but that's not what I'm talking about. The point is the mind's not so happy when it's that way. It's not clear and decisive and... Uh, <laughs> able to function in a way that uh, is fulfilling for us. And of course, if the mind has these qualities of wanting and not wanting and being confused, kind of a darkness in the mind, it also has its moments when the mind is it's not wanting anything, and that can be quite glorious. I think sometimes it passes us by, just those moments when we're just content. We're not particularly wanting anything. Or when there is no aversion in the mind. Or when there's a bright uh, clarity, when the mind is luminous, luminous, lucid, and it can really see clearly. Those are wonderful times. It's just uh, an easier, uh, the, the just living is just easier when we have a clear mind to live with and from. So this is the third, and surely you know that one. now. We haven't been focusing on them specifically, making them into, uh, in this sutta of the Buddhas, the whole point is to bring the body into focus, to bring feelings into focus, to bring these mental formations into focus. And up until now, what we've been encouraging you all to do is to bring the breath into focus. Uh, things will change tomorrow. But around that, uh, in fact, so many of the questions really are about, well, I'm trying to be with the breath, but these other realms keep pouring in, taking my attention away, something happening in the body, and I can't keep the breath in focus. There's some feeling that I've gotten caught on. I don't like it. And so we, we keep getting sucked in, and we can't concentrate. So, of course, you've been learning about everything that I'm mentioning. Is that clear? You know that, But you've been learning at it kind of inadvertently, um, 
The first part of our practice we call shamatha, where the, in a sense, that's the official project, which is to calm and concentrate the mind. But really, you could put in parenthesis vipassana, shamatha in parenthesis vipassana. Because certainly certain kinds of and levels of insights come. You must have noticed that things keep changing. The breath keeps changing. That's part of why we suffer sometimes. And so uh, you're already beginning to, to some degree, uh, get into the realm of insight. Okay, so um, what we've been doing is trying to focus on the breath, but becoming familiar with all this. Now, the fourth foundation, not trying to become familiar, in a sense it's forced upon us. We are constantly reminded that we have a body, feelings, and the mind is constantly cooking. And in the midst of that, we're trying to come to this utter simplicity of an in-breath and an out-breath. And I hope we're all you know, starting to thread our way into it and be able to be with the breath a little bit more. Okay. The fourth chapter uh, has to do with discernment. Uh, and that is, uh, that's pure vipassana, and we could say that that is insight, and then in parenthesis, shamatha, or concentration, because for a couple of reasons, you can't really develop any insight worthy of the name unless there is some concentration. But also, as you see into something and understand it, uh, the other side of that is you become more peaceful and concentrated. Let's say you have a, something that's bothering you and you see into it. There's this, an insightful seeing and it falls away. Well, you're a little bit more calm and you're a little bit more concentrated. Okay, now we haven't officially gotten into that. But you've noticed that the breath keeps, it's, it's deep, then it's shallow, then it's, then it's smooth, then it's rough, and so forth. Classically, um, the way to practice there, uh, the, the Buddha used a, a variety of ways of practicing this. One is to really do a lot of work systematically in each of these foundations. Spend time targeted, specifically focused on some aspect of the body. There are a number of them. Feelings and the mind itself. Uh, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it, which is what we'll be doing, is what is sometimes called the condensed method. Uh, and in the condensed method, all four foundations are treated, but they're treated in a very economical, condensed way. Now, alongside of this is another issue that is uh, quite prominent and important in our practice, and that is the question of how concentrated does the mind have to be to do insight work. And there are different approaches and strategies that have to do with uh, different temperaments and uh, different uh, conditions. So there's no one-size-fits-all in our practice, and that's why the individual interviews, that's why Michael and I value them very much, because in its, the instructions are general, but when you come in, we hope we can really hear you and try, if it's necessary, uh, tailor the instructions so that it's appropriate for you. Some people really are drawn to concentration, and within a short period of time, they're just becoming quite absorbed 
Wonderful. That's a tremendous asset. Sometimes when that goes along with, the person doesn't want to investigate. So you have to kind of light a fire under their bun to get them out of the, out of the concentration. It's so satisfying. Okay. I would say now in the modern world, and for us as lay people, not having, uh, for the most part, long-term, very idyllic conditions, bucolic, serene, everything in place, uh, that it's harder to develop what are called the jhanas. I'm not alone in thinking this. It's, I've spoken to all of my teachers about it. And, uh, seems to be so. But even at the time of the Buddha, uh, the Buddha taught in different ways, and there are different ways to practice uh, different options we have. Uh, one is to really spend a lot of time on samadhi, develop very strong concentration, and then uh, to use that uh, the, the power of that to help you investigate, to help you investigate and to see that everything that arises passes away. Okay. So that can be very, very helpful. If you have a strong concentration in back of your looking, it's a blessing. It's wonderful. It's not to be underestimated. And so one way of practicing is that way. Uh, another way is to just jump in with a modicum of concentration using mindfulness right away. And, but you see you're developing concentration, only now it's on a moving field of objects. It's not on just one, the breath. Some people do much better with that. They feel imprisoned with one object. Some of you have talked about that. It's like claustrophobic, in, out, in, out, in, out. Some people love it. Whew, break from all that complexity. Everyone's different. There's a whole psychology to everything we do which you, you'll know better than, than I, you know, as you get to know yourself. Okay. So in uh, this other mode, you're, uh, you, you jump in uh, and you start developing momentary concentration. That is, there's a level of concentration that's sufficient to be with an object during its life cycle. So whatever it is that comes up, not just the breath, but including the breath, sounds, etc., can you be with it while it's there? So you're developing concentration, but it's on a moving field. Um, another way to practice, which is what we are doing, is to develop both these qualities, the strength of steadiness and concentration and discernment, that keen looking, seeing into the nature of things in, together. I don't know if in tandem is the right word, but they, as collaborators, like right and left, hands working together. And so we've started you off uh, by working with the breath in an exclusive way. Hopefully you're starting to become a little bit more at home with the place, with the food, with the teachings, etc., and with, your, uh, with yourself and able to follow the breath and perhaps calming down a bit. You don't have to have perfect concentration to begin to do insight work. But uh, some degree of it is really helpful, really helpful. And we work back and forth so that the instructions will change actually tomorrow after breakfast. Uh, I hope if you have a job that um, keeps you from that, we might have to make other arrangements because you should be here. Um, that would be the 815 sitting. Uh, they'll will give you some practical instructions that are an expression of what's being said tonight. Um, and so it's a way of 
each person working in their own way. It's not standardized. And so some of you, especially some of you who are really new, you may be spending a good deal, perhaps most of the retreat, uh, developing this samadhi, you know, the concentration, working with the breath a lot in an exclusive way. That would not be a waste of time, not at all. However, we would like you to get some experience in uh, being in a field uh, of events that make up really you, what we think of as being me, or as the full range of emotions and feelings and bodily conditions. Even if it's, uh, you have a hard time handling it, it's all right. Start getting your feet wet a little bit, and we'll learn how to work back and forth between uh, calming and fine-tuning the attention of the mind on a simple in-and-out breath, and then expanding the field so that we're with whatever turns up. And, we l- and that's another art all, all of its own, to have no preferences, to have no uh, choices, to just uh, sit and be available to whatever life uh, presents you with. And you become aware of it because it's there. And if you find you're unable to do so, out of focus, start psychologizing and analyzing, then you go back to your old friend, the simple breath. And so each person will, uh, part of what we hope you will learn here is how to guide yourself. So when you go home, you can guide your own practice, and each sitting is different. How to blend these two uh, skills. Now, just to come full circle, and for those of you who are new, this will be more concrete tomorrow. When you just sit, let's say you sit with your breathing and you're open to whatever turns up, uh, the four foundations of mindfulness will all be there. Not in a neat and tidy way, but everything that I just went through systematically uh, will turn up. Of course, uh, if you're sitting there, sometimes the body will be most vivid. And so that's what you will be aware of because it's got your attention. It's not that you have to look for things. They find you. And sometimes feelings will be prominent. And sometimes uh, different mind states. And then we're also beginning to see that no matter what it is you're attending to, its nature is to arise, to pass away, and that it lacks an enduring or a, uh, a solid core. It's insubstantial. It's not a self. It's not, it lacks an in- independent selfhood. That's more the fourth that we haven't touched upon much, but we'll go into that in in detail soon. So that um, all the four foundations of mindfulness will be tended to uh, as you sit and breathe and attend to what is most alive for you in that given moment. And what is most alive for you in a given moment will keep changing. So, of course, you're going to be learning about the impermanence of everything because you can't attend to what's happening unless you do that. Because nothing's static, nothing's frozen. Um, now, why do all this? And this is, this is actually a fifth chapter in our life which has no words in it at all. That is, through insightful seeing, there's a letting go into freedom and liberation. Whether you call it nirvana or unconditioned or true nature or original nature, many words for it, the great stillness, uh, that grows out of 
uh, all this hard work we're putting in. Uh, what comes out of that is nothing less than freedom. Now, uh, freedom, as I'm using it here, doesn't mean that you have to wait uh, for 500 years until you're perfect for this to get free. Maybe freedom with a capital F, but freedom is possible and slavery is possible in every moment. And so we're learning how to recognize how we enslave ourselves, essentially, and through insightful seeing, how to free ourselves. And so it's the practice of freedom, practice of liberation. So it's something that is relevant for us right now. It's not that we have to wait. And we don't have to wait till we're perfect. We begin with what we have and who we are, and we work from there. Okay, so I, th this will be more, uh, I hope, more concrete for you tomorrow when we have the instructions. And uh, then we'll be spending the rest of the week um, weaving back and forth, working with these two modes of practice. You'll be hearing more about this, of course. Hey, could we have a few moments of silence? Thank you for your attention. Let's do some meditation while walking. <laughs> 